All right, well, tonight will be our final message from Ecclesiastes, and uh, I'm so excited to share with you all what the Lord has shown me. We will begin tonight in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, so if you're in the church's Bible, on page 412, 1 Kings, chapter 18. Have you ever wanted to run and hide from things? Is there a situation right now that you are just sick of? Circumstances that you just feel weak and powerless against? One of the spirits that the Lord has set me free from is passivity. A passive person in general, is one who does, does not take action but lets things happen to them. And passivity as a spirit is tricky because coupled with other spirits like control and pride, it can easily be justified, overlooked, or diminished. Scripture tells us that the serpent in the garden was more cunning than any beast of the field. And recently I experienced have experienced the enemy of, of our God using new tactics to lure and to trick me into this old spirit passivity. Where, where passivity wants me is worn out, tired, defeated, and feeling powerless. So instead of taking up spiritual arms, I'll go hide under the bed sheets, plug my ears, and hope it will all just go away. Passivity wants to lure us into spiritual submission so that it can bring its evil friends like control and pride and fear and wreak havoc. Earlier this week, passivity was working to bring me back into this submission. I knew I didn't want to be in it, but it was flanking me from every direction taking a new and different approach that I had not experienced to find any way it could to find a weakness. So I asked the Lord for a scripture to understand this spirit because I knew I had to understand it more clearly to fight back. It is not enough to know that we are battling something. It is not enough to know that we are being defeated. We must know God's truth and God's word so that we can align with God and be delivered from bondage. So the Lord led me to this familiar story that we have just sung of with Elijah and Ahab. You know this story here in 1 Kings chapter 18. Israel had gone three years without water, uh, without rain, as a punishment for their idolatry. So Elijah confronts evil King Ahab, who himself was passively submitted to his wife Jezebel. And Elijah challenges Ahab to a spiritual showdown. Ahab was to gather 450 false prophets to Baal and 400 false prophetesses 
to Asherah and all of Israel. It's often left out that all of Israel was also gathered there because they were worshiping Baal and Asherah as well. So I'll tell you the conclusion of the story that Yahweh wins this spiritual showdown and Elijah executes all of the false prophets. But where I want us to read is where the Lord led me to understand passivity. Read with me in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, verse 21. It says, And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. As we have just sung, Elijah summons all of these false prophets and the king and all of Israel, and he says, make up your mind. The focus, the word I want to focus on here is, in verse 21, our translation says, falter. How long will you falter between two opinions? Other translations you might have may say waver, limping, or struggling. How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you limp between two opinions? How long will you struggle between two opinions? This word in Hebrew is the word Pesach, which is the word we understand as Passover. Not as in the um, proper noun, the Passover event, but as in God passing over the doorposts that have blood painted on them. See, Hebrew words can mean one thing in one context and something very distinct and different in a different context based upon the words and the situation and what is implied. This word, Pesach, can be translated hop, skip over, hesitate, limp, dance, become lame, leap, or pass over. So what this word is describing here in 1 Kings 18 is indecision. It is hopping around, skipping over, hesitating, limping, dancing around something, and lameness. It's describing spiritual passivity. And that is exactly what Israel is filled with at this moment. 450 false prophets to Baal and 400 false prophetesses to Asherah. These are people from Israel. It doesn't say that they were brought in from bordering nations full of sin. These are prophets and prophetesses that are in Israel ministering to people called by God's name. And Elijah summons them and says, choose this day whom you will serve. The enemy of God or God himself. What Elijah is telling this nation given over to idolatry and the leaders of pagan worship is to choose this day whom they will serve because they cannot mix God and evil or flesh and spirit. I was so grateful and I am so grateful for this understanding because passivity almost seems harmless. What seems like simply inaction or indecision is in fact a decision to align with the enemy. And I knew that I could have none of that. Seeing my circumstances 
spiritually, I got out of this place and with haste. Tonight we'll conclude our study in Ecclesiastes and with Solomon. And what I believe we have been seeing over this study has been building to reveal Solomon's demise. Passivity. Week after week, we have seen wisdom and understanding given to Solomon and the opportunity to choose to be refreshed or depressed. Yet I'm still not convinced, I'm not certain that he's not just settled and chosen to see that the best option is to eat, to drink, and be merry. See, Solomon himself in each chapter that he writes is confronted with this decision. And I believe that he has been passive at every turn. So turn with me now to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. If you're in the church's Bible on page 773. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, page 773. Roger, if you don't mind to put on the slide, please. So we're going to go through what is in our section here in Ecclesiastes rather quick because I believe what's most significant is the conclusion. So in the last chapter and a half or so, beginning in chapter 11, verse 7, and through the conclusion, Solomon begins to kind of wrap things up. And in a sense, he summarizes what he's already told us. He begins by saying, there will be days of darkness. He gives advice to the young and then says that we ought to understand what is coming. He says again that all of this is vanity and then he will give us a conclusion of all the things that he's been concluding for us. So let's read together these, these verses beginning in chapter 11 verse 7 and we'll read through the end of the book. Solomon says, truly the light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many and all that is coming is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun and the moon and the light, excuse me, while the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim and the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, 
when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low and they're afraid of height and terrors in the way and the almond tree when the almond tree blossoms the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it vanity of vanity says the preacher all is vanity and moreover because the preacher was wise he still taught the people knowledge yes he pondered and sought out and said set in many proverbs the preacher sought to find acceptable words and what was written was upright words of truth the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd and further my son be admonished by these of making many books there is no end and much study is wearisome to the flesh let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all for God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing whether good or evil so the first thing he is going to tell us is that there will be dark days he has said this again and again and he's going to say at a final time that dark days are coming and they are many he says Solomon reminds us that this is a certainty in our lifetime the next thing he does is he gives advice really to the young to say that we should follow the Lord when we are young and our days are simple because there are days that are coming that will not be so simple like if we were to tell Abigail it is so important that you follow the Lord right now because all you're really doing is going to school and the, the biggest worries you have are playing on the playground with somebody but we know that there's days coming where you will be put to decisions that will be life changing where life will be filled with worry and chaos and difficulty so if you can't follow the Lord now while things are simple and easy it is going to be very challenging to follow the Lord when things are difficult and life is on the line the next section he he wants us to understand what is coming all of these things he describes in metaphor or symbol are, are really to say that we're going to wear out that our bodies are going to give way he's saying that our arms and our legs are going to begin to tremble that our legs and our knees are going to begin to sag that teeth are going to be lost and chewing is going to be difficult that our eyes are going to become dim our ears are going to become weak that sleep is going to get more difficult that generally the older we get the more fearful we're going to be our hair is going to turn white the active are going to become weak and the zeal for life is going to wane this is pretty depressing stuff but as we get older we know these things to be true we know that our body is physically deteriorating every moment of every day how will we sustain ourselves in this flesh the answer is we won't so what he says after this is that in case we haven't heard it clear enough all of this is vanity 
all of this life, all of our deterioration, all of the flesh means nothing. And although Solomon knows this, he continues to teach people, it says in verses 10 and 11, that he's going to continue to give counsel and teach and offer wisdom and understanding. Verse 11 tells us, the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. So he's invoking God's name here as the one shepherd, saying that we should, even given all these things, it's good that we listen to the words of Scripture. But also, the next verse, And further, my son, be admonished by these things of making many books. There is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. He's saying we also need to be careful not to believe everything we read. So he finishes all of this buildup, all of this to say everything is nothing, but on the one hand, it's still good that we, you know, read scripture and be taught good things, but on the other hand, be careful not to believe everything we read. And then on a pillar, he concludes with this for us. Verse 13, let us hear the conclusions, excuse me, conclusion of the whole matter. As if to say, everything he set up until this point really is vanity. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. It says, for this is man's all. Some translations say, this is man's job, this is man's duty, this is man's purpose. This word here means all. It means essentially everything that we can accomplish and achieve is to keep his commandments. So you might be thinking, why doesn't this seem sufficient? Because I'm not convinced. I'm not reading this verse thinking, way to go, Solomon. You have really helped us. Isn't Solomon making a good conclusion? To fear God and to keep his commandments. Well, the answer is yes. The problem is Solomon didn't do this. Solomon didn't uphold his only conclusion that he offers us. So I want to take a journey through some of the verses of Solomon's life. We're going to spend some time in 1 Kings, but first I want to look at a few scriptures back beginning in Exodus. So turn with me to Exodus 34, page 101. Exodus 34, page 101. We're going to read a few of the scriptures that the Lord gave to Israel and to Moses as warnings before they went into the promised land. So in Exodus 34, we're going to begin reading in verse 10 and read through, thir uh, through 16. It says, And he said, Behold, I will make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among them whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. 
Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Parasite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods. And one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice. And you take his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with their gods. And make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So we're told here that the Lord is going to do some great things. That he is going to do miracles like have never been seen. That he's going to lead the Hebrews, the Israelites, into the promised land. And he's going to drive out their enemies before them so that they can inhabit the promised land. And he says, but be careful. Be careful that you don't intermarry. Be careful that you do not make covenants. Because if you do these things, they will bring you in to commit idolatry with them. Next, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So the law was already given a first time, and what we just read was, was after the law was given, but a part of the law. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 7, as the law is being given a second time, as the, the tablets are being, are being made once again, chapter 7, page 210. God's going to give another set of instructions that are synonymous with what we've just read. Chapter 7, we'll read verses 1 through 8. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and he has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor shall you show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son. You shall not take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly." But this you shall deal with them. You shall not, you, excuse me, you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden, wooden images, and burn their carved images. For you are a holy people, and the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than the other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and, a re and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Last place we'll read to see this is in Joshua 23. Turn over to page 273. Joshua 23. So in Joshua's farewell address, 
just before they, they cross over into the, over the Jordan, we're given one last attempt to hear the Lord's word regarding these things. We'll read in verse 11 through verse 16. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go into them and they you know that for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from his good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God has spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one word of them has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God has promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Joshua's warning gets even more stern to make it very clear that if God's people mix with unholy people, if they intermarry, if they make their sons belong to daughters of other nations and daughters of other nations belong to their sons, and if they go after other gods, that they will perish and the Lord will drive him and them from the land that he's given them. This is the backdrop for which Solomon becomes king. This is the knowledge that has been given to God's people again and again and again. This is the epilogue to God's law and God's declaration of dependence and independence from the bondage that they've been in. So let's turn now to 1 Kings and read about Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 2 on page 385. So in 1 Kings chapter 2, David is on his deathbed. And as David is beginning to die, he calls Solomon before him, and he's letting him know you're going to be king, and he's, he's wanting to give him some advice. So read with me the ver verse 1 through verse 4. It says, Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may fulfill his word 
which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David's commandment, David's word to Solomon is to follow the Lord's commandments, right? Pretty much verbatim with what Solomon concludes Ecclesiastes with to us, right? He says, it's really simple, son. If you follow the ways of the Lord, then not only will your days be long, but you will prosper. Not only that, the Lord will keep his covenant with me that there will be somebody on the throne in Israel from our lineage. Turn over to chapter 3, just one page over. We'll read verses 1 through 4 here also. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and buried incense, excuse me, burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was a great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Okay, so just one chapter after David gives Solomon this great advice, right? Um, Solomon goes and, and does what he wants. He may, now, I should say this is chapter 3, which is the great chapter where the great Solomon comes before the Lord and says, the Lord tells Solomon, you can have anything you want, and Solomon goes, I want wisdom, Lord. And the Lord says, oh, well, because you've asked for wisdom, you'll also get riches and success and all of this. So chapter 3 is known for those things. But chapter 3 glosses over the real Solomon. The real Solomon that um, makes a treaty with Egypt and solidifies it by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Now I'll say this. It was completely normal that nations made treaties and cemented them by royal marriage. It's, it's still happening today, right? But the Hebrews don't have a very good track record with Egypt, do they? It's only been a few hundred years since they were slaves there. Interesting that that's the first wife that Solomon takes. And just as we've just read, there is not a small number of scriptures that describe not intermarrying with people of other nations. And the Lord gives a qualifier each time he explains this commandment. He says, so that you're not drug away into false worship with other gods, and so that I won't have to remove you from my presence because you can't worship me and another. Verse 2 tells us, meanwhile, while Solomon is out worship, excuse me, while Solomon is out marrying Pharaoh's daughter, the people, Israel, sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. 
So a high place is a simple place of worship on an elevated area, a hill, a mountain, a mound that was dedicated to idol worship. Make no mistake, a high place is not dedicated to Yahweh. Yahweh never asked for a high place, but other gods did. So false worship, pagan worship, idol worship was done on a high place with an Asherah pole, with stones stacked in just a way, with wood decorated, with jewels and shapes and different things that were an object of worship. So meanwhile, the people of Israel are worshiping at high places. They say, because there is no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Except for that before this time, there wasn't necessary to have a place of high worship to worship Yahweh. God's people worshiped him anywhere and everywhere according to the commandments. But we'll come back to that. Verse 3 says, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. So let's pause there. It doesn't say that Solomon followed the Lord and loved the Lord, walking in all of the Lord's ways and commandments. He says he followed in the footsteps of his father David. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because we know that David is a man after God's own heart, but David was also a man after his own flesh. Solomon is his son from Bathsheba. And this son did those things except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. So if it's not enough that Solomon's out here marrying Pharaoh's daughter, making connections with the nation that they've been delivered from bondage in, then we've got the Israelites over here, unbeknownst to Solomon, I'm sure, that are doing worship at the high places. Solomon comes back, finds himself at the high places himself, making sacrifice to the Lord. Doesn't say he was making sacrifices to Baal or Asherah, but he's doing it to the Lord. Verse 4, now when the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, so next Solomon goes to Gibeon, for there was a great high place. There was an even higher place than some of the other high places that maybe he was making sacrifices. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. How wonderful of him to make a thousand sacrifices to the Lord on a great high place of the enemy. So also in chapter 3, as we said, then the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream. He tells Solomon, you know, asks Solomon what, what he would have from him. And so we know that Solomon asked for wisdom. So let's read in verse 13. It says, And I've also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings of your days. So the Lord gave Solomon everything. He gave him wisdom, but wisdom doesn't equal a relationship with him. But what he says the Lord in verse 14, So, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. This is a if-then statement. 
if Solomon will do what the Lord's asking him to do, which has nothing to do with the wisdom and the riches and the honor that he's giving him, if he will do these things, then he will lengthen your days. This is a statement synonymous with prosperity, with another king on the throne, with all of the things that the Lord wanted to do in his life because um, he was in the promised land. Okay, so turn over a couple chapters to chapter 9. We come to the second encounter that God has directly with Solomon. Solomon was a very blessed person because God didn't just speak to him through his word, through prophets, but God spoke directly to Solomon. Second encounter is here in chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 9. And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me, and I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish your throne excuse me, the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me, if you do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off from Israel for, for the, excuse me, from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name will be cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this, done thus to the land and to this house? And they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. So God warned Solomon again to follow his commandments and keep his statutes and his judgments. He said, your throne will be established forever unless you or your sons turn from me and go and serve other gods. So we're reading all of this scripture and it's so important that this isn't one passage taken out of context. This wasn't a misunderstanding on Solomon's part of what was expected or what would happen. This was a decision that he made not once but 900 times to have 900 wives and not once but 400 times to have 400 concubines. In chapter 3 we read that Israel and Solomon worshipped at the high places because they did not have a temple to worship, right? Turn over one more page or two more pages to chapter 11. We'll read in chapter 11 um, through verse 11. Verse 1 reads, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Amorites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor 
they with you. Surely they will turn you, turn your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemoth, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. This is such a powerful passage that is rarely taught, is rarely studied, is rarely proclaimed as a cautionary understanding for God's people. Paul says these things were given as our examples. And he's not just saying these things like, oh, you know, we shouldn't sin. We shouldn't be, you know, led into a, a temptation situation. He's saying we should learn from men like Solomon who were given everything the Lord could offer and refused it. Refused not just those physical things, but the relationship with the Lord. Now Solomon is making high places for all of these gods. All of these gods. He's building high places around Jerusalem. This isn't accidental worship. It's not um, a means to an end because there's no place to bring the sacrifice before the Lord. He is going out of his way to align with his wives that he never should have married and making their gods God. So what have we just read? Well, we've read about this man Solomon who was Israel's most eligible king. His dad was a man after God's own heart and he gave him great advice. He said, keep the commandments of the Lord. So while intermarrying was a common practice, it was against God's law. Although Israel didn't need to strengthen their political ties with any nation like Egypt because the Lord was going to drive out the enemy nations before them and keep them out, Solomon did it anyway. Solomon did it anyway because he wanted women and the women wanted places of idolatry and false worship to their gods and Solomon said, okay, fine by me. 
what we read here is a picture of a squandered inheritance, of squandered salvation, and a relationship with God. God's continued warning to Solomon is a picture of salvation and sanctification. Not only that he would be with us, but that he would deliver us from spirits and bondage. See, even the second time the Lord appeared to Solomon, even when Solomon was reminded, I believe that the Lord was aiming to have mercy on him and remind him of who he was. He had wandered in the darkness, but if he turned from it then, if he said, it's got to go, the Lord would have cleansed Israel, would have cleansed Solomon, Solomon's house and brought him back to fellowship. This is the understanding of salvation and sanctification. It's not that we're to be perfect, but it's that we are to be repentant. It's that we are to not refuse what the Lord is offering us. After he drives them out, we cannot go back. God had driven out the enemy before Solomon, and Solomon welcomed them back. Now what I share with you at the beginning of the message is that God had delivered me from this spirit of passivity. There is no question in my mind that this spirit was shown to me, that I saw it, and that the Lord set me free from it. Now, the enemy is no doubt seeking its claim on me, aiming to trap me back in that place but I cannot go back. See, the Lord was confronting Solomon, but those places only got stronger. Initially, there was only worship on those high places before the temple was built. God allowed Solomon to build this temple, but he refused to hear the Lord's word even then, and so those wives, gods, grew stronger in Israel. They grew more numerous and more powerful, and greater high places were made. If the Lord has set us free from something and we welcome it back, it grows strong. And this is not a New Testament principle. It is an Old Testament principle. What Jesus talks about, about sweeping the house clean or a spirit leaving to go to the dark places and gather more, is evident here in the Old Testament. What we read at the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is a disappointment to me. Because Solomon gives good advice, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. But what he fails to share with us are the perils of failure to follow his own word. See, Solomon knows this understanding. He knows this to be true. He knows God's word is true and God fulfills his promises. Yet he squandered it. By the time we get over to 1 Kings 18, where we began, where Elijah is confronting 450 false prophets of Baal and 400 false prophetesses of Asherah, Israel had seven kings after Solomon. Seven kings that were not of the lineage of David and Solomon. That was done. The Lord was done with keeping a king like Solomon on his throne. He, he was done with that kind of king. Seven more kings after him followed in Solomon's ways and maintained this pagan worship. 
because of Solomon's indecision, because of his hopping around, his skipping around, his hesitating, his dancing around with sin, his lameness, this pasok that Solomon had, because of these things, spiritual passivity, this sin overwhelmed the nation of Israel that they had their own 850 false prophets of idol worship. They had grown and strengthened and they aimed to destroy God's people for the purpose of the enemy. This spirit of passivity is not a tame spirit. It is a powerful spirit that I believe is seeking to overtake the church is seeking to overtake God's people who cannot make up their mind between the world and the things of the enemy and the things of God. If there is anything that we can take away from the message of Ecclesiastes, it's not the great pithy scriptures like there is a time for everything. It is that we cannot falter between two opinions. We cannot dwell in the flesh and at the same time in the spirit. We must choose this day whom we will serve. The Lord, he is God. Amen.